Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 124, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, a record number of colleges are no longer requiring the ACT or SAT. So what does this mean for our students? And California is pushing back the start times for middle and high schoolers. How might that affect the rest of us? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest tells us three things good teachers do that bad teachers don't. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by a natural-born leader, Christina Pollard. Christina. Hey, hey, hey. That video you posted on Instagram yesterday, um, and this is going to actually air a week from now, and and you just looked at me like, which video? But you know what I'm talking about. This this is the one out of, I think it was Oregon, and I think anyone in education has probably already seen this, but just quickly. Right. Like, this is where the the teacher disarms the the student. The teacher disarmed a teen gunman. Um, There was a fellow colleague in the building who obviously had to try to figure out what he was doing to get the gun out of the hallway. But I think what's most um, striking about this video is he held him. He hugged him. He acknowledged whatever that child was saying to him. Right. He whispered softly. You could tell by just where he placed his face when he was talking to him. Yeah. And he just affirmed whatever that child was going through. That child looked completely safe and he looked relieved. Yeah. I mean, he basically disarmed him with love. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was, it was really powerful. And we don't know what was said or done right, around don't. the corner, but as they came around there, the teacher had the gun in his hand, but just, but he was also holding the right. student and not in an aggressive manner. I mean, I was so taken aback when I saw it right. and just moved, impressed, just completely overwhelmed because right. you have to think about what teachers deal with every day, all day, the number of students, the social emotional issues, um, positive and negative behavior, the constraints of student achievement and trying to raise test scores and meet the needs of, you know, the parents, the community, the school board, everyone involved, and then to have the wherewithal to use love mm-hmm. to disarm yeah. to disarm something so hateful right. and violent. Right. I mean, and we always say, like, you know, what would we do in that situation? I don't know if I would have ever thought to do that. I don't know. I could that full I, fight or flight thing, but this was a little different. It was. It, it was, is very different. And I, I know generally we keep religion and we keep politics out of things. But I have to say, just from my belief, the Lord put something on him right at that moment right. that allowed him to be calm and allowed him to use love. That that to me, that's that's yeah. all that it could Powerful be. video. I, I, again, I, this is probably we're, we're airing the show next week. So yeah. most people have probably already seen this. If you haven't seen this video and you don't know what we're talking about, just Google like organ teacher, disarm, gun. And you'll find the video. It's quickly. Yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be right up there. Um, So, uh, how have you been? Has it been a a good uh, week for you so far? Well, let me tell you. First of all, last week rounded out so well, and and, and, and let me find some wood and knock on it. But let me tell you, my week ended um, low stress, high productive. Everybody left on the weekend um, on a high note. 
Um, great weekend of winning football games, right. three in a row in my household. Didn't I see your son? Did he get some award or something? Yes, my son was awesome, Offensive Player of the Week last that's week. That's great, because yeah. he's young, right? He's like, a sophomore. That's big deal. That's my be. baby, yeah. yeah. He was pretty proud. He was just slightly disappointed. You will laugh at this. So every week when the Offensive Player of the Week um, and Defensive Player of the Week, um, they're announced, someone informs the local KFC. And oh, they yeah. put it up on the marquee, and then the kids that are identified, they get a, a, a free 20-piece. My child has gone past that KFC for several days looking for his name. He and wants his waiting, chicken. He's waiting on his chicken. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I think they skipped a week or two by accident. However yeah. it goes, I said, well, son, when your coach talked about it and, and, and um, announced you as Offensive Player of the Week, was that in front of the entire team? He said, it was. And I said, and what did the team do? He said, Mama, they clapped and and, and I smiled and it, it just felt good because I've been working so hard. He said, yeah. in the beginning of the season, he was rating the lowest on wow. the offense. Well, of course, he was new. Right. And then he's been rating either, you know, first, second, third, out That's of all great. of the players. And so he was pretty proud. But that chicken, though. Yeah, like he wants it. Yeah. I don't blame him. I mean, it's kind of critical. Look, he keeps looking for it. You, If you want to see, like everyone has a food that they're like embarrassed to eat, and mine's Popeye's chicken. Like, I, like I'm like i like the Tasmanian devil. Listen, and, and I said, well, are you going to share your 20 piece with one right. of your buddies? Nope. And he just looked at me. <laughs> so if you're listening out there, please yeah. put his name up so he can get those 20 pieces. Right. So uh, tell us, what's going on in the uh, teacher's lounge this week? You know, recently we had an episode where we talked about um, the impacts of the ACT test versus the mm-hmm. SATs and how um, they're putting some modifications in place instead of making students retake the entire test over. You remember what episode yeah, yeah. that was? That wasn't but like two episodes ago. I mean, uh, yeah. Two or three. Yeah. Well, there's a story coming out of San Diego right now um, about a young lady. I mean, an average student like everyone else, but she's a scholar athlete, works mm-hmm. very hard. She's taken the test multiple times. Her parents have spent over $3,000 on tutors. And what's interesting about that is now there are many colleges and universities that are not even going to require the entrance, the entrance exam, the ACT or the SAT. And there's pressure for many more universities to join because, because I mean, if you look at it, I talked about this young lady who took the test um, multiple times. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's a fee. And if you don't meet the poverty um, requirement, then you're paying for this exam. Not only that, her parents were so worried about the anxiety and the stress that she dealt with, they spent thousands of dollars on tutors. Well, not everybody can afford that. Yeah, this is interesting. So it's a big deal in California right now. And so they're hoping to push um, one of the local universities to adopt this same process and to eliminate that test because does it really show you um, the effectiveness of a student, how hard they can work or whether they can handle the level? Um, there are a lot of high performing students who just aren't good test takers. The, you know, I get it because I, I know I, myself, I'm one of them. I, I took, well, I actually myself in college did take the extra, you know, tutoring and stuff to, to do it. And, and if you have if you're fortunate enough to have the money to do that, then you have a competitive advantage. And but is if that you really don't, if you don't, you you do not. And so is that really fair? Is it's it not really fair. What? It's the what is you know, there's a phrase out there about drawing the line in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um what a lot of critics are saying is that it's basically um the have and the have nots. Right. If you come from a, you know, generally um upper middle class, wealthy family, you can afford all of the extra resources that are required to help your children pass the test. And then if you cannot afford it, then those are the children that are missing out on the extra tutoring, on the test prep support, but they're also missing out on opportunities 
to go to college simply because of this test. And they may have excellent GPAs. This is going to be driven, of course, as you were indicating, by the universities. It's like if the universities say we need this score, then mm-hmm. we'll continue to take the test, period. Like, yeah. but, but I guess what you're saying is more and more universities are saying, yeah, no, no longer are we going to require this to happen. They're like, starting to realize the impact that it's making, and it's not really showing them who their top students will be. Wow. Um, and the legislature is getting involved in this situation in California, um, hoping that they will make the next move and not require it. What do you think universities will fall back on? I mean, of course, you still have GPA. You could still do written essays. They're doing written essays. They're doing GPA. You know that some universities require interviews. There are recommendations that are involved. Community service is um, a big part of it. And then just the initiative. What have they done to impact um, you know, social justice, um, the world in itself as, you know, young scholars. I like the idea of an interview. Of course, that's tedious. I mean, you can't, it's hard to interview everybody who's coming to your school. If it's a competitive scholarship, then right, you, you've got to do what you got to do. Yeah, you definitely get there. And you, you kind of wonder with the day and age where we live in where everyone has a, a video camera. Right. I mean, on their phone and you could, you know, require students maybe turn in sorts of video essays and things like that. So you almost have the interview before an actual like sit down in person interview. Do you think there's something there? But I have a question. Yeah. We require all of this high stakes testing Mm -hmm. by the states. Right. So if we're testing reading language, math. In grades three through eight, science and five eight specifically for our state, and then again the multiple subject area assessments on the high school level. Why do we have to then require the ACT and the SAT? Well, and, we and, don't have all. We already have multiple layers of data. Right, but do universities have a right to see that data? I don't know. I mean, is that not? I, I think it would be appropriate if that students would be required to submit that. It's yeah. no different than when you're applying for your teacher's license. You've got to send in your praxis information. I think, it, yeah, if it was like an opt-in thing, like, hey, here are my scores. You know, I'm giving them So to the you. option should be there, I guess, right. is what I'm saying. If I want to take that ACT and SAT because I know I can perform well on it and I want that to set me apart mm-hmm. from other um applicants, then sure. But if that's a struggle for me um, and I push through and, and score proficient in advance on my state assessments, why do I then need to go and spend money right. to take another assessment to tell you the same thing that my state assessments can tell you? Right. Well, this will be interesting because, I mean, as far as I can remember, this is how we've gotten into college, SAT, ACT. That's right. And it sounds like you're hearing there might be somewhat of a cosmic shift just a little just a little discussion out on the west right all right well something to uh, keep an eye on i've got another thing coming out of the west it's um over in california again and they have just passed a new law statewide mandating that all schools start middle school and high school later in the day uh, um like wow middle school 8 a.m high school 830 now my I dropped my high schooler off at 815 that's that's when he's going to be late so we're kind that's of already a big, around there. big difference I, it, I guess it would depend on what time they're starting right now I think you've had some schools I want to say when I was in high school we were in the seven o'clock hour for sure when I had to get there um, and it all comes back to um, just these studies that have been done by um, they need more hours of sleep exactly and and, and just that they're they're getting that REM sleep, that really important mm-hmm. REM sleep later on in the sleep process. Well, they're going to bed late and you can't just force older, you know, teenage students to go to bed early. It's just not realistic and it's not happening. Right. Now, if I wanted to play devil's advocate, I would say, well, in the summertime, my 13 year old, he'll sleep till noon. Like, I, I, like, can we just do we keep See, that would happen in line? my house, too. But you would laugh. My husband has a rule. We're not sleeping past nine o'clock. We're getting right. up and we're being productive. 
my dad, um, he didn't necessarily like wake me up on the weekends at mm-hmm. 9 a.m., but he would weed eat right outside of my bedroom window. So. That does it every time. Right, and I, yeah. I, that's some of the tricks my husband will play too. But um, I think with, um, you know, student athletes, they're already up in the summer. You know, they have morning workouts. And so it changes when they get to high school. But I don't think those are bad times to, to toy with. I think if it makes a grand shift in your day, of course, you got to roll that out at the beginning of a school year and well prepare families for that. But I think it's helpful because you get your elementary schools up and rolling. Mm mm-hmm. And then you bust in your middle and high school students. I know this is something you've had to think about. And this is why they're saying it's a a big deal that the whole entire state of California is doing this is because of the logistical challenges that may come with this. And so they're going to kind of be under the microscope by other states because there's already been lots of counties, large counties and and cities that have done this. Well, if it's effective and it works, then you want to replicate it. But from what I understand is they're saying that you need to have buy-in, like you just said, of, of the community. So this means like daycares, after school programs. Absolutely. Those things. So the conversation has to start now. Right. And you're going to have to have some committees. There needs to be some surveys conducted. There needs to be some research done because how many of the daycares stay open until 6 p.m.? Um, not starting school until 8 or 8.30 generally rolls you around to a 4 or 4.30 closure. Right. Daycares are open until at least 5. Right. So you just got to make sure that you get school out on time for those teachers who would need to um, proceed to pick up younger children. It, it does start to become a challenge, though. Say, um, I used to, where I worked, had a meeting um, three times a week at 8.30. And so if I had, say, a middle schooler or a high schooler that I was driving to school, I mean, I know they can always take the bus, but that would make it challenging for some parents who, you know, you got to drop off the kid and get to those 8, 8.30 meetings. Um, so it does make it a little more challenging there, I think. So it, it, I think that, it, yes, I agree, but it probably goes both ways. Think about all those parents who are not working. Um, in, in some of the um, different communities where there are grandparents mm-hmm. um, raising multiple children. The later morning is definitely you know good for them and that arthritis and they're trying to get moving around. But I think the big thing from a teacher's perspective, they are much more alert. They're ready to learn. They're a little friendlier. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll engage and participate a whole lot better than um, quite early in the morning. Apparently they've been doing um, studies on this since the 90s, um, according to the article, and I can link it in the show notes. It's uh, out of it with uh, NBC News. But um, they found that they actually had reports of kids going to the nurse's office less just because they were sleeping more. And I don't know if it's because, you know. Well, when you don't sleep, you don't feel well. Your body aches. um, You can't focus. There's a number, you know, of negative impacts of not having a, you know, good sleep. And as you like to say, if they're not in the classroom. They're not learning. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely one to keep an eye on. So California may be causing another shift. uh, So it is a show of uh, shifts. There it is. Are you ready for the uh, Brad Idea? I am ready. Our guest in today's Brad Idea segment has worked as a director of English language programs both in the United States and overseas, and consequently, he has spent a fair amount of time observing teachers in action. Paul Morin recently penned an article he titled, Three Things Good Teachers Do That Bad Teachers Don't, and it really caught my attention because it seemed very, uh, I don't know, perceptive, and I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, position that he was in. Paul, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I'm excited to have you because I I really loved your article. And I think I liked it because you were just kind of a almost like a fly on the wall in these classrooms is the way I understand it. How did you find yourself in a position to observe teachers? Well, um, in my position here in the United States, um, formal observation and evaluation is typically um, a part of um, most 
university-based programs. I was teaching um, English as a second language and directing an English as a second language program. And so um, every semester, um, just like my boss did for me when I was a teacher, I had to um, go into a class and um, observe the teacher and, um, you know, fill out an evaluation form um, and then uh, work with the teacher on uh, um, things that they can improve and, you know, observe their strengths and their weaknesses and send that to management. When I was overseas, um, it was uh, they, the programs I was in didn't have um, a formal observation requirement, but there was always plenty of opportunity to for um, informal observation. Um, sometimes, for example, new teachers would ask um, to be observed or um, teachers who are looking to make a, you know, a better connection with a particular class, they might ask for observation or um, sometimes if a teacher was a non-native English speaker, um, we might agree that um, somebody should observe. And that was just, you know, then you just meet with the teacher afterward and discuss, you know, um, explore areas for improvement. And so what I really liked about your list is you openly say, like, a good teacher isn't necessarily a teacher that um, is friendly or unfriendly or strict or lenient. There's a lot more to it than that, right? Like, you, you kind of set all those type of characteristics aside, correct? Yeah, I, I've seen teachers that run the gamut. I've seen very, you know, um, kind of drill sergeanty teachers, and I've seen kind of really relaxed, laid-back teachers. And, the, and that, um, you're right, that is like not really what gets at the essence of what makes a teacher good. Um, the, the attitude they have isn't really it. Be, um, it's more the behavior of what they do when they get into the classroom vis-a-vis um, -vis the students. That's really what makes um, a good teacher. All right. So without even pressing any further, let's just go ahead and jump right into your list of three things because it just they're the type of thing that I think maybe teachers do, but they don't even realize they're doing. And that first one is good teachers watch their students' faces. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, you'd see a good teacher and they, they, they may not, you know, be actually looking right at them, but they're observing the students' reactions. Um, they're looking, they're checking all the faces in the room. And um, that's just something that good teachers all do. And they do it at key points, um, especially after they've, they've delivered something that might be a little bit complex. Um, and because they, the faces, the students' faces, that's really your barometer. That's where you see how you're doing, how, how they're digesting the information. And um, bad teachers tend to tend to not make that that connection that of of um, facial interaction. And what do you think it is? Do you think a bad teacher just is so tied into the lesson that they're not they're not worried about what how the students are reacting? That's a really good question. And um, just from sitting in the back of the classroom watching this, sometimes I would ask myself that. And I've I've narrowed it down to two things. I think that teachers um, who are really not making that um, connection of facial interaction are preoccupied with one of two things. Um, either they're really preoccupied with the material, um, and that is something that any teacher can, can um, make a mistake with. 
Um, if you get like overly enthusiastic um, about um, some material, you might like forget who you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're focused on the material rather than the people you're delivering it to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first problem. The second problem is um, they get preoccupied with their performance. Um, I've met teachers who like in a meeting, in the hallways, you know, over lunch, they're perfectly good communicators. But once they get into a classroom, they suddenly feel like it should be a performance rather than just interaction and one person trying to convey something to another person. The analogy I always use is that you think about something, uh, a, a teaching environment that's, that's very casual or relaxed, something like um, teaching your niece or nephew how to play chess or um, teaching the babysitter how to use the VCR, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know. Um, everybody's really kind of pretty gifted at that. People can do that. You, you know, you are teaching your little brother um, how to play football or whatever. Um, there's a just kind of a casual, can, you make a, you make a, a casual, uh, relaxed rather, um, connection just automatically. And some teachers completely forget that when they go into the classroom. But that is really the ideal, I think, of what uh, would constitute good teaching is just the kind of teaching that you would do for someone that you love, you know, someone in your, in your family or a friend, for example. Uh, number two on your list, you talk about Good teachers check for understanding. Is, is that how is that different than just watching a phase? Well, I I think you still need to. Some faces are going to be kind of blank, um, and you might be misreading them. And so I, um, plus some material is complex enough that even what you see on their face isn't going to tell you enough. So I think you still need to check for understanding. Of course, all teachers think they do this. I mean, because it's like, it's part of, you know, it's part of teacher pedagogy. Um, But um, a good teacher will do it in a way that that digs below the surface. Um, If you just ask, for example, um, the yes-no question, does everyone understand this? You're going to get silence. Right. And so... A bad teacher will just assume, okay, you know, everything seems to be going okay. Nobody said anything. Um, but a good teacher will target a person who might be likely to not understand it uh, and ask a question that asks them to assess what they've, what they've just heard and kind of not just, not just give it back, but actually use it, use the information somehow. Um, and so that's one thing I think good teachers do is, is they're probing for, I don't want to say this, they're probing for areas for the, for the actual lesson to break down. In a way, they kind of want the lesson to break down because they want to see who's not understanding. They want to find that person. When you're really rolling out that new material, you, you do kind of need to let the kids shoot holes through that material, correct? Yeah, yeah. That's and it's a it's a, a perfect way to um, also improve is if you find a student who's able to ask that question, 
you know, instead of just saying, does everyone understand, finding that one student in the room who says, but what about, or how do I do, you know, ah, that's a good question. Then, and now the teacher has to think, um, oh, gee, hmm, what do we do? And so there's this constant uh, refinement of your own um, understanding of the material and the way to present the material, you know, to the next class. Uh, number three on your list is good teachers devi deviate from the lesson plan when necessary. Why is that so important? Um, because you have this situation where the lesson can break down and the student who doesn't understand. If everybody understood at all, then they shouldn't be in that class. They should, the class should not exist, right? So, um, the class exists because they're learning and they're learning when they stumble and they, they haven't, you know, um, got it all. So you are going to come up to situations where um, there's a roadblock where students just don't get it. And if all you, if your only tool in that situation is to repeat what you just said only slower, that's really not going to help the student. The student is looking at it from one particular angle or one particular perspective. The teacher has to see what that perspective is and see where the student is making their mental error and on the spot adapt what they've taught to accommodate that student. That's the, that's the ideal. And I think good teachers have a way. This may be something that's that's um people have a knack for i don't know mm -hmm. but um some people just have a way to uh completely completely change their approach to accommodate what students are expressing or what a group of students are expressing. Yeah. And, and I really like what you just said and you, and you write about this as well. You, like you said, if a student says, could you please go over that again? It's so important not to say the same thing you just said before, like it needs to be different. And then you write, um, the student isn't hard of hearing. So usually, um, when you ask, does that help? They'll just kind of lie and say, yeah, thanks. Which I've been that student, you know, the second time you're, you're told the same thing and they say, does that help? You're just like, yeah, thanks. And, and they walk away, but I didn't necessarily get it. And that's why that's so important, right? Yes, it is. And I've been that student too. And you're, you're putting the student in a real dilemma. If all you did is repeat it, because if you said, no, I still don't understand the student, the student who says, no, I still don't understand is left with a choice. It's like, I'm either making myself look stupid or I'm making the teacher look stupid. Those are the only choices I have if I say no, right? So um, I have to say <laughs> the second time a teacher repeats something, I have to say yes. <laughs> right. I have to lie. So a good teacher understands that. They don't want to put a student in a position like that. They, they want to completely throw out what they just taught and teach the same thing in a different way. And then the student doesn't have so much qualms about saying, huh, I still don't get it. You know, uh, I go back to like, if you were teaching your little brother or your little sister, something, um, you know how to coach it, you know, how to phrase it, how to pitch it so that your brother or sister will understand. And a good teacher can do that. And a good teacher also has the patience to rephrase it 
repeat it, do whatever is necessary if they still don't understand. So, Paul, let me ask you, you, you've worked with, you know, student teachers before. And at what point did you have this clarity where you're like, these are the things that have you ever given this feedback to a a teacher who's learning? And and how was that received? Oh, that's a good question. The, uh, the ability to deviate from the lesson plan is, I think, something that every new teacher needs to learn. Uh, New teachers, they're, you know, they're kind of nervous. They, they want to go in there and not look like a fool. And so they stick, they use the lesson plan very much like a crutch. And if they went in thinking that it was a classroom full of, you know, little brothers and sisters, their own family, they'd have a completely different approach. And so you have to, so I have used the, that advice um, for new teachers. Yeah. What's your advice to a teacher, especially a new teacher who hasn't been through this a lot yet? What's your advice to them when they have an observer in the room? How do, how do you keep that out of your head? Because it's got to be a little nerve wracking. Yeah, it's, that is. Um, and I have seen some teachers get kind of nervous when I walk in. Um, so I, I, I really, that's a good question. I really don't have an answer for you. The, I mean, the ideal is to forget this, to forget that the teacher is there, that the observer is there, um, and or just think that the observer is a student, just like anybody else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that one. Uh, fair, fair enough. Well, Paul, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I love the clarity of this. It's, it's digestible. It's easy for a teacher to, you know, that's a veteran or even new to kind of say, am I doing these things? Am I, am I reading my students? Am, am I, you know, asking them if they understand? So it's just really a good, concise and, and clear list. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm uh, happy to do so. Are, are you ready for our pop quiz? Oh, that's right. Pop quiz. Okay. I guess so. I'm ready. All right. You sound like you're ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should that be? History. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, Other cultures. What does every child deserve? Individual teacher attention. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Giving that individual teacher attention. What's the best gift to give an educator? A book you might think they'll like. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, that's easy. Uh, university literature professor named Robert Knoll. Uh, learned everybody's name by the end of the first day. Unbelievable. Wow. That, a lot of students, I would imagine, right? Yeah, I was 30-some. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Paul Morin. Again, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And thanks for the uh, great list and being a guest on our show. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.